Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome back to TV's Top 5, the Hollywood Reporter's TV podcast. I'm Leslie Goldberg, West Coast TV editor, and I'm joined as usual by our chief TV critic and my partner in crime, Mr. Daniel Feinberg. What's shaking, Dan? I'd say happy 2020, but we did that last week even though it was canned. But still happy 2020, Leslie. Happy 2020, my friend. It was good to see you over the break. And, uh, well, it sounds like you watched a lot of bad broadcast stuff. <laughs> uh, I can only watch what I'm given, Leslie. But yes, yes, I did. But we'll talk about that plenty later. We had a couple slow weeks around Christmas where maybe there wasn't all that much news or excitement, but guess what? It's been a newsy week, and it's a busy podcast, so let's get to headlines. We are coming to you, we should note, from Pasadena, where we have already begun the Television Critics Association's Winter Press Tour. And yeah, look, you know, to start headlines here... CW isn't even paneling. They're not attending TCA at all, but yet they still renewed its ent- nearly its entire slate. They handed out pickups for 13 shows, including rookies Batwoman and Nancy Drew, plus a 13 script order for Katie Keene ahead of its debut. I mean, it's a, the big difference in, in those renewals this year is Batwoman and Nancy Drew don't have those Netflix deals, which provides additional revenue to those studios, Warner Brothers and CBS. And to me, it's a, it's a big sign of faith that the CW will continue to show patience with new shows and give them time to grow and express confidence in their creative with these early pickups. And we mentioned, as we always do in these cases, that Leslie's wife, Natalie, is a writer on Batwoman, and we're very happy for her. I'm very happy, yes. In other renewal news, FX has picked up American Horror Story for three additional seasons, taking it through its 13th season, which seems appropriate, Dan. Indeed it does. And on more renewal fronts, Killing Eve has been picked up for a fourth season ahead of its third season, and it will continue to change showrunners every year, just like Designated Survivor. (laughs) Damn it. Damn it. Damn it. Damn it. Damn it. Damn it. You get a renewal, and you get a renewal, and you get a new showrunner, but it's by design. Um, Over at Fox, during its TCA day, the network, which uh, bypassed an executive session this year, announced that it is turning to Ellen DeGeneres' show segment, The Masked Dancer, and will turn that into a fully-fledged TV show. Dan, you have to have some kind of pun here. No, I don't, but I'm just kind of curious as to exactly how fully-fledged it's going to be, or if it's just going to be a shameless knockoff of the beloved formula of people in funny costumes. Yeah, it's going to be that. I mean, you've seen the segment on the Ellen show. It, no, it's I right there. Haven't. It's embedded you? in the story. That doesn't Read mean our story. I clicked on it. Come on. Lots of things are embedded in lots of our stories, and I don't necessarily click on them, and clips ah. from the Ellen show fall under that category. Ah, it's fun. <laughs> 
Uh, over on at HBO, they have some really big development news. The premium cable network is in early talks for a limited series based on awards darling Parasite from Bong Joon-ho and Succession executive producer Adam McKay. If they have to do something like this, and I'm not necessarily 100% sure why they have to, this is as good an idea as I can imagine for such a thing. So by all means, but really and truly everyone, if you have not seen Parasite, seek it out at your nearest theater. It is truly one of the best movies of the year. I got to catch it over the break, Dan. It's remarkable and probably my favorite movie of 2019. No, it is terrific. Um, On a casting front, uh, Josie Tota has booked the lead in Peacock's Save by the Bell update. Melissa McCarthy will star alongside Nicole Kidman in Hulu's limited series Nine Perfect Strangers. And Patricia Arquette will reunite with Ben Stiller and star in the Apple drama Severance. And speaking of Golden Globe winners, HBO led all networks with four wins in a ceremony that feels like it was 1,100 weeks ago. HBO's Succession, from Adam McKay, of course, won Best Drama Series, and Fleabag took home the trophy for Best Comedy. Dan, do you have any any stray thoughts about the ceremony or host Ricky Gervais? Or how long ago it seems like it was <laughs> that we watched the Golden Globes and actually had thoughts? No, it seems like a very long time ago. Uh, it was not really a wildly inspirational text, uh, but we definitely do want to give some cheers, applause, and shouts out to end of 2019 special TV's top five guest Rami Youssef, who won for lead actor in a comedy series. If I haven't mentioned to you lately that Rami is a TV show that you should watch, uh, that probably means we haven't interacted. And it probably means you haven't been listening to our podcast. And by the way, Dan, you were right. I, I you know, I watched it uh, as a surprise for you last year as a, a nice anecdote here. And then we wound up booking Rami for the podcast. And yeah, you were right, man. That, that That is a great show. Go back and listen to the interview. He's got shows in the works at Netflix and Apple. He, he's got a bright future ahead of himself. And obviously that Golden Globe is going to go very far with getting people to tune in for, for the Hulu show. And speaking of bright things in front of themselves, this podcast. Yes, we have a jam-packed episode with two incredibly great guests. And we'll, let, let's dive right in. Number one. Leading off this week, FX has released its annual peak TV update. In 2019, if you felt overwhelmed by the sheer amount of volume on television... I did, it, Leslie. It's because there was a lot, a record, to be to be fair. 532 scripted originals, Dan. <laughs> that is up 7% from last year's total of 495. And this is, of course, counting scripted comedies, dramas, and limited series that aired in the U.S. FX CEO John Landgraf noted that the tally will likely to continue to grow this year, given the looming launches of streamers HBO Max and Peacock. Dan... There really is no end in sight, and it's only going to continue to climb from here. Yeah, the the story, of course, of of peak TV as a piece of terminology, which was coined by John Landgraf, was that— Spoiler alert, our next guest. —was that there was a peak to it, and he at the time was not saying, oh, no, the bubble's about to burst, whatever, but he was giving the indication that within a couple years, perhaps there would be a gradual slowing down, plateauing, possibly even decline— that has turned out not, in fact, to be the case, right? That I don't even know what to say about it. It's it's ridiculous. Well, yeah, you, this year you've got, we, as we've talked about so much on this uh, on this show, the launches of HBO Max and Peacock coming up. Quibi, which I don't believe will be counted in the scripted tally because it is a short form platform. But, you know, speaking of Quibi, you know, they presented this week at CES and, and said that when it launches April 6th, it plans to offer and strap in for this, Dan, more than three hours of original content each day. 
That's 175 shows in its first year alone. And of course, these are all short form, but that's still content, Dan. Yeah, I, I did ask John Landgraf if he was going to count those shows next year, and he, he said he's not. And I'll say one more time, it should be pronounced Quibi. Don't care <laughs> quick what, bites. I don't, I don't care think quick, quick bites are going to work. Quibi. There's only one of them. It's singular. We digress. But, oh, you know, we digress. One thing that, that will be noted, though, in that in that downfall when the 2020 com- numbers come out is audience network, Dan. We've talked again, another subject we've talked a lot about on the show, the future of that platform and its originals, which include David E. Kelly's Mr. Mercedes. Well, we have the answer finally. And it's audience network is dead as you know it. So no more originals, no more choir programming, no more concerts. This is going to turn into, in the spring, an HBO Max preview station. And what this means for its remaining originals, those include Louder Milk, Yumi Her, Condor, and of course, Mr. Mercedes. Maybe. Maybe. Those, we don't know. Those are left in limbo. Um, sources are saying, telling me that they may very well move to HBO Max. Listen, three of, four, of the four of those are already renewed. Yumi Her for a final season. Some of those haven't re- aired in a ye- more than a year. So they've been off for more than a calendar year. They were little watched to begin with, and they have no home. Yes, I like I liked the phrase that you used at the beginning. The audience network, as you know, it is dead as about 75 percent of our audience is going audience network as I know it. I don't have a clue yeah, what no you're one talking knows what about. It it's basically the, the premium cable platform that direct TV subscribers have access to. So if you're a Dodger fan like me and you understand that Spectrum only has Sportsnet and the only way to watch the Dodgers on Sportsnet legally anyway, is by being a Spectrum Cable uh, subscriber. Audience Network is the equivalent of that, but for also for DirecTV subscribers. Yeah, and the nice people at Audience Network don't like us saying no one knows what Audience Network is, but they don't mind when we say that a lot of the shows that have been on Audience Network are actually pretty good, and if they happen to go to HBO Max, you really might find yourself really enjoying Louder Milk, and I've said nice things about Mr. Mercedes before, and again, it's it's just another place in a very, very crowded landscape, and heaven knows Audience Network always had the advantage of DirecTV as a platform with it, but in the same way that I feel like many, many, many of our listeners are only peripherally aware that Spectrum has originals, no matter how many times we mention uh, Mad About You or the existence of that show with Jessica Alba and Gabrielle Union. What was that again? It, What's LA, the name of that one? LA's, LA's finest, finest, yes. And it was success, quote unquote, successful enough to get renewed for a second season. Whatever that means. Um, but yeah, I mean, these are and these are things where you know, to some degree, it's not even Audience Network or Spectrum originals' fault. You know, yes, Audience Network has an OTT service or had an OTT service, rest in peace, Audience Network. But, you know, if you don't have Spectrum Cable, not only do you not get the Dodgers, but you don't necessarily get LA's Finest. And this continues to be the problem with Peak TV just in general is is the economic proposition of it all that people can't afford all of the things to watch all of the programs. So there might be 532 shows, but how many people out there actually have access to all 532, leaving aside the time to watch them all? Yeah, who aren't members of the press and get getting screened? But even I don't have access to all of them. I mean, I you know, I just don't have access to everything because I'm I'm only one man with only one paycheck. It's I can't even watch the Dodgers, Dan. Let alone LA's finest or Mad About You. You don't necessarily need to watch 
mad about you but yeah but you know look <laughs> one thing we we should plug is our september 13th episode with david e kelly when he joined us for one of my, one of our favorite interviews all about mr mercedes and the challenges of finding an audience when you're on a platform like audience network so by all means go back and, and check out that it's one of our our better showrunner spotlights but yeah so peak, peak tv it continues to not yet have it's reached peaking. its peak <laughs> yeah uh well uh, speaking of john landgraf that takes us to our next segment Number two. Our first of two guests on this podcast is a gentleman you may have heard us mention, oh, I would say just about every week on the podcast. There is a reason why people in our profession jokingly call him the mayor of TV. His official title, however, is FX CEO. Yes, we are pleased to welcome John Landgraf. Thank you for joining us. Yeah, thank happy you. to be here with both of you. Much of your session this morning at TCA focused on FX on Hulu. And the four shows that are moving over there and the opportunities that that, present, that that gives your network. Obviously, you know, this is a way for FX to grow its brands. You're, you're getting an extra 30 million viewers with thanks to Hulu subscribers and reaching an audience of cord cutters. But one thing that I, I'm really curious about is it's an effect on your plans for the linear network. You know, when we spoke a year ago, you mentioned a plan to grow originals. So I think you mentioned 14 or 16 originals in, in calendar 2020. How do you see that the Hulu partnership is affecting FX's linear growth specifically? Well, first of all, we're, I just have to tell the listener that we're in a really swanky room at the Langham Hotel in Pasadena looking at a beautiful view. And that's appropriate because when I think of Daniel and Leslie, I think swanky. <laughs> that's, the, that's the adjective that first comes to mind. Um, actually, there is more original programming in production for the linear networks of the FX channels than there has ever been in the past. It's the most we've ever had. And so we were able, actually, through this initiative to grow the investment and, um, and to make more. But if I were honest, I would say that I think that's probably the capacity for investment that the FX channels have because they can't grow, because the system they're in will stay the same or shrink at whatever rate it stays, but it's not growing, whereas you know, revenue and usage and subscribership to streaming service is rapidly growing right now. So to invest, to increase your investment, you have to be investing against growth. And it's very difficult then for a linear channel that's pinned in a system that's not growing to increase its investment. So what's great about this is we were able to sort of get finally to the max, which I think we're kind of at for the linear channels. And then we were able to layer on all this incremental investment that is there, in, a, in essence, to let us try to drive the growth of Hulu and ultimately the Disney streaming services. And so, you know, the hope is now that now um, that we will replace what we're doing at the linear channels continuously, as well as investing and growing what we're doing at FX on Hulu. So it's actually worked out pretty well. And, and the key for us was it had to be one brand. We didn't want to fragment the brand and have two different FXs or a different FX over there than here. You know, we even have another channel called FXX, which fragments the distribution, but ultimately all rolls up into one brand. So part of what we had to work out is, well, how can the thing on Hulu not just be a fragment of the FX brand so that you could judge that fragment over there or this fragment over here, but it rolls up into a unified whole, which is just more of the thing that you are used to getting from FX and so, you know, it's, it's, been, it's been interesting. And I, if, I, if I could just go on for a sec, the, the thing that's, I think, fascinating and challenging about this moment in media is that 
or, or, or let me put it this way. You know, you, if you guys were in the devs panel, Alex Garland was talking about the transition from monarchy, where power concentrated in an individual, to parliamentary democracy and other forms of elective democracy, and the notion that that was a moment when we transitioned from, from unified power to shared power, and that the internet has created a form of unified power again that has no governmental oversight or no elective oversight. So these people are monarchs in some ways in terms of the amount of power they exhibit in society. And so what the internet does is it has a concentrating power. It has, a, it has an expansive power. And so you will end up with streaming services that are able to offer vastly more content than any channel ever could in the history of the world <laughs> and can spend more money individually than any individual channel could ever spend. But it'll also be concentrated, incredibly concentrated power. So what you can see going on, I think it's really, really smart, which is what Disney's doing, is they're trying to ultimately allow that necessary centralization to exist technologically and from the consumer standpoint and design and interface so that essentially you can compete and you can have enough scale and volume to compete in the world. But you saw that they've now broken it down into three different streaming platforms that are sold as a bundle, ESPN+, right, ESPN. Plus, Disney+, mm -hmm. Plus, and Hulu. And then within that, they're also breaking that down into sub-brands in two of those major streaming services. So then you have to figure out how do you have empowered you know, how do you have empowered creative entities that are centers of creative excellence? How do they serve this new master, which is the streaming service, as opposed to the old one, which is the channel? And we're serving both right now. And how do they have enough power and authority at both places? And they're working it out. I mean, it's really interesting. I think, yeah. I think it's, it's, it's challenging sometimes, but I think it's working really well. And to me, it's, it's streaming 2.0. I believe there's a limitation that will be created by the notion of everything being concentrated under one brand because a brand that is everything to everyone, anything anyone would want to watch anywhere, anytime, anywhere in the world is a utility, right? It doesn't have the same specific curatorial emotional attachment that a Disney can have or an HBO can have or an FX can have, right? And so ultimately, you have to get to that level of scale, but you want the curatorial excellence that's getting lost along the way, right? And so what he's trying to do, what we're trying to do is reconcile all that. And, and it's playing specifically, out specifically in this merging uh, relationship with Hulu, which is fascinating and good. The, yeah. two, the two organizations are learning how to work together. Have you gotten more of a budget to, to spend for... Yeah. I mean, how much have, would you say it's, it's increased? Do you have a, Can you share a dollar figure? No, I can say a lot. That's all I can really say, Leslie. I can say that we've gotten to the, to the most money we've ever been able to invest through the FX networks, and we're layering on significant investment. Because this year, it's four series we otherwise wouldn't have made, right? Devs, Mrs. America, A Teacher, and The Old Man. And next year, it's more than four. And the year after that, it's more than next year. So that's fantastic. For now, us. as you're in development when and who has to decide which shows are for FX on Hulu, which shows are for the mothership, which shows are for FXX, who has the final word on on that and what are the factors? To be honest with you, it hasn't even come up yet. Um, we have a particularly resilient and strong schedule at FX right now, and we renewed almost everything. Um, we're adding two new comedies, Dave and Breeders, and then we made um, a series of docu-series, which we've never done before, many of which will premiere this year. 
And then we have a bunch of things returning next year that were on hiatus this year for various reasons, like Atlanta and American Crime Story will either be later, probably later this year, but, and then uh, Fargo, right? Other things like that. So the slate next year will be even bigger linearly. So we were able then to focus the sort of principal amount of our development at FX on Hulu because we didn't have really extensive new needs. Over time, that'll shift though, because essentially as we get stuff established on uh, FX on Hulu, shows will come to their natural conclusion because they're stories that have beginning, middles, and ends in the most point, and we'll replace them on FX. So I think you'll see years when this next year, the preponderance, there's six new scripted shows, four on FX on Hulu, two on F, one on FX, one on FXX. I think there will be other years where more stuff, new stuff goes on FX on Hulu than FX. And I think then there'll be years where it's balanced. And then I think there'll be years eventually where there's more stuff, new stuff coming to the FX networks than there is FX on Hulu. And, you know, it's really all one brand. I think what will be really interesting to learn is whether there's a meaningful difference in the audience that is generated on the platform versus the linear channel. What is the What are the two together? And then what is best for the one as a whole? Because we do have some shows that, for the moment, are exclusive to the to the FX on Hulu. And I guess what I would say is, you know, it's our job to develop these shows, program the brand, but I'm really, really curious and want to learn how to put that brand to work for Hulu. I want to learn what works on Hulu, what doesn't work on Hulu. So I'm actively solicitous and interested in what, you know, Randy Freer has to say, or all of the staff have to teach us about what they think they know about what works or what do, what doesn't work. Even Craig Erwick, who's mm-hmm. managing the other original brand, who you'd think of as a competitor, knows more about that platform than I do and has been incredibly helpful in sort of sharing his learnings. But also it's a new platform. So I think everyone's still just figuring out as we go along. And, and it's also a platform uh, that... As it gets larger, it'll begin to look more like all of television. You mm-hmm. know what I'm saying? Yeah. Right it, now, it's... It's, it's going to be a Netflix. It's more point. female and younger than the FX channels, which is great because I want to be able to go access a more female and a younger audience. But over time, it'll begin to demographically look very much like television as a whole, albeit I think there will always be an age difference now between the average age of viewers on linear channels and the average age of viewers on streaming services. Streaming services are where more young people go to watch and consume. <laughs> Until those of us who are actually watching TV on TV just die. die. Yeah. <laughs> Aww. Um, well, we, you know, we're talking a lot about volume. And of course, you know, you coined the, pe- the term peak TV. And this morning released a new number, of course, another record of scripted volume in the U.S. And this is, of course, for comedies, dramas and limited series. It's 532. Yeah. I'm just going to let that sink in for a second again, because I don't think it's it's affected me yet. But 532 scripted originals last year. What has surprised you about the findings? I know you guys didn't break out everything the, the way you you have done in the past in terms of by distributor, streaming, cable, broadcast. Because, what is, because it's what is streaming now, for example. What's is HBO, FX on Hulu? Is HBO a premium channel or is it a streamer, streaming, streamer? It, is FX, FX a basic cable channel or yeah, a streamer, right? Does so, an FX on Hulu show count as an FX show or a Hulu show? It counts as an FX show and a Hulu show. I mean, one of the things that's really interesting about it is if you think about think about this, that, that, that when you have a monolithic brand, i.e. Apple, Amazon, or Netflix, by definition, every original on that platform is a Netflix original or an Amazon original, go to Disney+. Plus. They are 
Disney originals, Star Wars originals, Marvel originals, National Geographic originals, Pixar originals. You must actually get the recognition and the credit to the brand and the people that made the show. But is it in any way fair that that gets disaggregated so that Disney Plus doesn't get to count all of the excellent work that was done under its aegis when it's compared to an Amazon, right? And, you know, then at Disney, there'll be the bundle that will that will essentially be able to aggregate all that. So I think the industry has to learn and respond to that because essentially now there are two levels at which a consumer will want to know where does this thing I love and this quality uh, reside or where does it come from? Yeah. They will want to know at the platform level and they will want to know at the brand level. And sometimes brands are platforms. And sometimes they're not. Yeah, like like a Mrs. America, hypothetically, when it eventually, as it probably will, get some kind of Emmy nomination, would that be counted toward FX's total or Hulu's total? Or will that not be broken out anymore and it'll just be Disney? Well, I need it counted both. <laughs> I really do. <laughs> yeah. Because because if you think about it, you know, my source of funding is is Hulu, right? And so I don't want to be in a situation where we win uh, something for Mrs. America and Craig O'Rourke's team wins something for a Hulu original brand and Hulu doesn't get the credit for something we did. But on the other hand, I can't be in a situation where they get the credit. We don't, right? Because right, essentially developed we developed it, we did the work. So we're going to have to work together, Hulu, us, the rest of the communications team. By the way, we're not the only business that has this. Peacock has this issue, right? HBO Max has this issue. Right to the extent they want to nurture and sustain the HBO brand as a separate brand, they need HBO to be counted for its own work. But then they're going to have this other thing called HBO Max, and they don't want to entirely disaggregate the benefit of the consumer loving the HBO critical acclaim and awards from the HBO Max platform. So this is an example of the place where I think the industry is going to have to catch up. You guys are going to have to catch up in the way you count and report this stuff. With I these completely realities. agree. Yeah. But I just wanted to close out talking about the volume. You know, when you look at the, the number 532, did you see, you know, I know you didn't release any details here, but did you see growth in, obviously the growth has to be in streaming, yes. but do you have any details about what was, if there were losses in broadcast or, or basic cable, et cetera? Broadcast is relatively close to its consistent number level. Uh, premium is actually up a little bit, and basic cable is is down a little bit, and streaming is up a lot. But the thing that I that we realized last year when we were looking at this is that if we put a chart together today that said, um, let's just say hypothetically there were 180 streaming shows, 150 basic cable shows, and then this many broadcast next year. A hundred of those broadcast basic cable or premium cable shows would be streaming shows. Yeah, because some of them will probably move. Too. So it's all going to be streaming eventually if it's if it's scripted. Because I think broadcasters still are and still will be an important place for scripted drama. But live TV is much better served and experienced on a channel, and uh, and a streaming environment is probably you know the state of the art for a scripted series. Right. Yeah, absolutely. And just a quick last question, because we've talked about the show several different times in the podcast. I couldn't tell from what you were saying on the panel today. Are you feeling like why or why the last man, whatever we're calling it, is now looking at 2021? Or do you still have hopes it might sneak in by the end of the calendar year? Yeah, it'll be right on right on that margin, Dan. I, I, it's because we 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 just decided we needed to take more time with the material and with the development. Um and so we do have a production date that could enable it to air this year, and it also could stretch to, to next year. 
By the way, one of the things I realized uh, when you were saying that uh, you might die from the volume is that, uh, unfortunately, uh, no matter what I do, no matter how uh, much I love my wife or my kids or whatever they all accomplish, uh, peak, <laughs> peak TV is going to be on my tombstone. But here's the thing. It's going to be on your tombstone, too, because it's going to be the thing that killed you. So. <laughs> that sounds like a wonderful place to end. Thank you so much for joining us, John Landgraf. Thank you, John. FX on Hulu will begin March 5th with the launch of Devs, the drama series from Alex Garland, and be followed by Mrs. America on April 15th. Number three. Sticking with uh, press tour and fun things that have been happening at the Langham Hotel in Pasadena this week. Up third, ABC had its time before the press with Carrie Burke outlining her plans for more live programming and one big tentpole per month. Leslie, give us some highlights from what we learned from ABC's day at the TCA press tour. Well, Carrie Burke was a little bit more unshackled this time than she was in her last stop here with the press. And her big one of her big takeaways was ABC's push for live programming. You know, we've seen them have success with the live in front of a studio audience, those live comedies from uh, Norman Lear and Jimmy Kimmel. They just aired the second one in December. And what she announced was that, you know, look, they did the Little Mermaid live. Well, sort of live. It was half Disney movie, half live production. They're going to do another one of those. This time it's Mel Brooks's Young Frankenstein, which will air around Halloween. And that's part of a larger strategy for ABC to do at least one big live tentpole per month. And some of the other news that they announced on that front, the Connors, the Roseanne-less Roseanne spinoff, that's a fun thing to say, the Roseanne-less Roseanne spinoff, will air live the night of the New Hampshire primary and have those election results via ABC News become a factor in both the East and West Coast live broadcasts as that is written into those episodes. So that's a big thing that you're going to that you're going to see on ABC. They're also going to be doing more live hours of American Idol of and of The Bachelor. And then speaking of The Bachelor, they they greenlit a music themed Bachelor spinoff called Listen to Your Heart. Listen to your heart. Oh, sorry. No. Oh, keep going. No, 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 I'm not, no, I'm done. Dude, we got to do TV's top five karaoke. Edition. We really don't. It's coming. Yeah. <laughs> Um, meanwhile, Jimmy Kimmel is going to host a celebrity-focused edition of Who Wants to Be a Millionaire that has a charity component and a play-at-home app as well where, where viewers and, and players can win the same amount of money that the celebrities are playing for for charity. Meanwhile, you know, on the pilot front, ABC is getting an early jump on the season. They handed out two big pilot orders. One is for a 30-something sequel featuring a handful of the original cast members returning um, I'm told this, that ABC will find a way to make that a little bit more inclusive on the casting front. The other pilot order is for a Dracula-inspired drama called The Bride. It's from the creator of Riverdale and Greg Berlanti. And, you know, look, this is... You were you supposed know, to proceed this with that with this week in Greg Berlanti news. Yes, you're right. <laughs> this week in Greg Berlanti news, he's got yet another pilot. And the fun thing about, you know, him having a pilot at ABC is ABC is the only net broadcast network right now that doesn't have a show from Greg Berlanti. That, that isn't among his list of 21. And I'm not embellishing. He has 21 shows currently in production or on the air. So th th those are your big highlights from from ABC. But yeah, you know, the the other big takeaway, too, is it, Carrie Burke confirmed that the Oscars will go hostless again this year following uh, last year's uh, hostess ceremony after the whole Kevin Hart debacle. And ABC will have also air the Emmys in September as it takes its turn in the broadcast wheel of that ceremony. 
And uh, probably my favorite joke that Carrie had during her presentation was, uh, she, you know, a member of the press asked her if she had any thoughts on if the Emmys would be hostless or who she would want to host the ceremony. And she quipped, Baby Yoda. And I'm here for that. I, I'm fine with it. I think it it's interesting to continue with the hostless award show, quote unquote, trend and see where it's going because the Oscars worked surprisingly well last year without a host. They bumped up in the ratings and the show itself moved fairly well. But then the Emmys went hostless last fall and they were pretty awful. It was about as badly produced a telecast as I've ever seen. And one of the things it very clearly needed was the structure that a host can provide. So I, I don't know necessarily how we're supposed to feel about the takeaway of needing or not needing a host. So there's that. I'm also perplexed by the decision of young Frankenstein, Frankenstein, sorry, Frankenstein. as uh, the musical selection, because it's not a very good musical. It was a musical that premiered on Broadway, did okay, was very poorly received, got rebooted and revamped for a production that, uh, that I saw in London about a year and a half ago. And I didn't think that production was any good. So it's a, it's a really good name and a brand, and it lets them talk about being in business with Mel Brooks, which, you know, you want to be in business with Mel Brooks in the same way you want to be in business with Norman Lear, but it's not a good musical, and very few people are going to be tuning into that broadcast because they like Young Frankenstein as a musical. So it's going to come down to the talent they attract, and it's not a good enough musical to necessarily attract that much talent, except, you know, the original did have Sutton Foster and also... Who knows? It confuses me. Bachelor, listen to your heart. Yeah. Well, there there is one one. Last, I, I, are you were you gonna sing again, Dan? Uh, no, no, no. I was, I was contemplating it, but it didn't seem necessary. <sighs> Next time. Well, the last bit of information from ABC was an update on the status of Marvel on the broadcast network, which. You know, Carrie said that she's in talks with Kevin Feige, but there's no there's no next show. Um, they've got the final season of Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. And of course, that's the one that started Marvel's entry into scripted. And and it was from the now former Jeff Loeb era at Marvel Television, which has now been folded into the uh, into Kevin Feige's uh, oversight. For more information on that, check out half of the podcast we did in late 2019. <laughs> Yeah, but so yeah, she wants another show on the on broadcast. But look, Marvel's focus right now is on Disney Plus, and and as Carrie said it, that's where it should be. Listen to your heart when he's calling for you. Listen to your heart. Come on, Leslie, join in. No, but you are hopped up on TCA sugar, and I'm here for this it. This is only three days in, anyway. So yeah, I guess I guess that's what ABC brought to us. Uh, they also brought us a, a great panel with uh, with Alex Trebek and the the three Jeopardy goats. Um, that was a really good panel. I don't know that we'll that was have a lot of a, fun. I don't know that we'll have a better panel at he this. Really, he press really tour. held court. He's he's fantastic, and he's so very woven into all of our experiences with television over the past 40 years. Yeah, we only only wish him well, only wish him health and and wellness and good spirits because Alex Trebek is truly a North American treasure. Well, that takes us to our next segment, Dan. I'm sorry, no more singing. But up next, we have our showrunner spotlight segment. <laughs> 
Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire. Huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. ChumbaCasino.com has over 100 casino style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Number four. Our guest this week is Tim Minear, who is known on Twitter as at Cancelled Again, but whose luck has changed considerably in the past decade after serving as showrunner on FX's American Horror Story and Fox's new franchise, 911. Minear, who currently runs Fox's Ryan Murphy-produced 911 spinoff, Lone Star, also worked with the likes of Joss Whedon on such shows as Angel and Firefly and Dollhouse, and everyone including Sean Ryan on Terriers and Chris Carter on The X-Files and Brian Fuller on Wonderfalls, and well, you get the idea, he's had a pretty impressive career. Thanks for joining us, Tim. Thanks for having me. I'm excited. <laughs> um, well, let's start with the, the larger look at the at this whole franchise. Was this always a plan when you first hatched the original 911 for this to grow into a multi-show franchise? Like Weirdly, this? Ryan did kind of mention something like that when he first posited doing this. And I'd never seen anything so miraculous. I mean, I've seen many miraculous things with Ryan. Um, but the miraculous thing for me was... You know, he he was like, I really want to help out Dana. You know, she was running the network at the time. Dana Walden, of Dana course. Dana Walden, yeah. uh, along with the studio. He's like, I just, you know, I'm going to go do this Netflix thing, but I'd really just like to give her a network hit before I leave. <laughs> I'm like, Ryan, I don't think it's quite that easy. I don't think you just go, let's make a network hit. And then we did. So it was kind of crazy. Like, I'd never quite seen the intention uh, to just kind of, I'm, I'm not, it wasn't even a cynical intention. It was like, let's do something that's network friendly, that has all the functioning pieces that you need to potentially have a hit network TV show. So that was the idea. How we sort of fell into making that a reality is a little bit of a different story. Um, but he did say, you know, with something like this, you could have 911 New York and 911 Austin. You could do, you know, you could, this, this idea could live in different cities. And depending on where you put the show, it would create a different kind of feel, but with the same kind of three legged stool of 911 dispatch, fire, and police. So uh, the, the long answer to your short question, which is, um, you know, Ryan knows all and is usually three steps ahead of the zeitgeist. <laughs> so are you already thinking about the third show and I'm sure going to go international? I'm sure, I'm sure Ryan's thinking about the fifth version, fifth iteration. He doesn't always tell me what he's got hatched uh, or what he's hatching. You know, I, right now I'm just thinking about what shoots on Thursday, to be honest with you. I'm not kidding. <laughs> what is your reaction when someone like Ryan says, OK, I'm going to calibrate a popular network show your reaction is if it only it were that easy and then he does it how do you respond seeing something like that in work uh, i respond with surprise and not surprise i mean i mean <laughs> it's what it's what we set out to do 
I, I look, I, I think it's easy to say that, and the fact that it turned into something that is actually quite successful has a, also a lot to do with just how the thing has grown going forward. Plus, you can't always predict what the alchemy of a certain of certain elements are. Like the cast of Nine One One creates a certain alchemy that I think is refreshing to the audience. Those people don't look alike. They're they're different types. There are familiar faces and faces that they've come to know, but it's interesting. the The chemistry that you see on screen between those characters is actually the chemistry on the set. Like they, I'm three years into this, and everyone still loves each other. It's quite astounding. How do you keep it from being cynical, though? Like how you know from being sort of too pre programmed, too over calculated? Well, it's it's impossible with this show. Because even though it may look like, oh, it's a cynically piece of manufacturing, it's actually not. Like, I and the other writers on the show approached the show with love for the characters, wanting to tell stories that we're interested in seeing, and actually, by being lovers of network television that works. Look, we, we all, I think, m you know, most writers of my era and younger, they all want to do the shiny, you know, edgy cable thing and I get to do that right I get to do American Horror Story or I get to do Feud or you know I get to do different things and even in the network world I've got to do weird things like Wonderfalls and Firefly and I got to do all that stuff but we approach it with a real love for the platform and the genre of network television and we want to be excited when we go on Twitter the night that the show airs and watch the fans react to the insane things that happen to having their hearts in their throat for the characters they love for melting when you know a beautiful moment happens between two characters that they've that they've come to um to follow so um that's how we keep it from being cynical we don't approach it cynically we have to love the show ourselves we have to be fans of the show because it's just too much work uh not to be yeah. So, so why Texas? I mean, the pilot opens up and this is a little light spoiler here, but yeah, it obviously spoilers. opens up with Rob Lowe, who is the last surviving member of his New York firefighter battalion, rebuilding his unit after 9-11. And then he moves to Texas. Um, we won't spoil the reasoning there. But so why Austin and why not pick up with Lowe after 9-11 and, and set it in New York? Uh, well, I think one element that I think works for the show is the blue sky of it. I'm not saying you couldn't have um, an iteration of 911 in you know in New York or a place where it got cold and it was snowy and was a little bit darker, but certainly the palm trees and the blue sky of LA juxtaposes nicely to some of the insane emergencies that we have. So there was an element of uh, there is a blue sky of Texas element to it, but the short answer is Ryan wanted to set it in Texas. I was pushing for Miami because I felt like it was most correlative to what we do in LA, but Ryan really wanted to say something about red and blue America and to approach both with uh, respect and with regard. So it's kind of weird to pick Austin for that because Austin is like the, is bluer than blue. It's this blue state in the middle of a red state, uh, but it does give you urban environments, country environments. It gives you the music scene. It gives you sophistication. It gives you kind of, um, you know, Texas America. It gives, it gives you all those different flavors that you can that you can draw from. And a reason to have a bull on set. Okay. And a reason to have a bull on set. And, you know, it would be weird to cast Jim Parrick on a show that wasn't set in Texas because he is pure Texas. <laughs> but when you have Texas, there are obviously these these very clear hallmarks. And you have some of them. They're the aforementioned bull. You know, there's line dancing in the pilot. Mm -hmm. But when you're eyeing the cases, how do you keep it from being kind of the barbecue and queso case of the week? Well, it's interesting. Coming up with these cases is, I mean, you, we could do an interesting, you know, 
multi-part podcast on how these cases get picked for the show. I mean, literally, we were in the office last night, and I was throwing out the cases that we had decided on for the next episode that's about to shoot, because it, it really is like, you're like a chef making something to taste. Like, this case feels weird in this episode. This episode doesn't have enough body horror. This episode doesn't have enough funny cases. This episode doesn't have enough cases that really have big, uh, life-threatening stakes. So the way we approach the Texas cases is similar to how we approach the LA cases. We just look for crazy stories from Florida and China. And usually, (laughs) usually, uh, you can, uh, you know, then then you have to, you know, figure out how to make it feel, you know, a, like a Texas case. But not all the cases feel like, you know, corn pone or not everything is somebody gets sucked into a grain silo, although we do that case. <laughs> but one of the early cases that we do in the second episode of Lone Star is a strange, something has infected an office building of young on-the-go executives uh, and they start acting like zombies and walking out of windows. So I don't know that you would think that that's necessarily a Texas story, but it certainly fits in Austin, which is very sophisticated as well. You know, you mentioned that Ryan wanted to set this show in a you know, place where you could explore red state, blue state politics. How political will you get, given that that was a priority for Ryan? It's interesting. It's more, I would say it's less political and more more cultural. I mean, to us, it's more interesting to see a character from the East or West Coast come into Texas with pre-existing ideas about how Texans are and to be surprised and to be wrong. Uh, It's more interesting for characters who are in Texas who might have a pre-existing idea about how some, some, you know, coastal elite might be and to see that they might be wrong. Uh, So it's, it's just more interesting, I think, for us to have our American conversation with these different cultural elements and to make sure that when we're speaking in the voice of any of these characters, that we're trying to get into the heads of those characters and be honest about them and to show how at the end of the day, I'm looking at you across this table, you're a person and you are looking at the world through your eyes and you're feeling things through your own experience in the same way that I am. And it's just, I think the important thing about, I mean, look, I don't want to make too grand a statement for our fun little Fox procedural show that where we flush babies down the toilet on occasion. <laughs> but what I will say is the thing that I think we've been so successful with on 911 is that we have, you know, we have lesbian families and we have, you know, a gay ex-husband who is part of a blended family uh, that's an interracial family. You know, we have a single father who's a widower who has a son with special needs. Like we have all these things, but again, it's not like it's a very special episode of television's 911. No. It's that these people exist, and yet, for all their differences, they they all share something. And on a show like this, it's that they are heroes, and that they will run into danger to save strangers. Well, I'm a bit fascinated by the way the series treats diversity and inclusivity, because the first scene, someone comes and sits down with Rob Lowe's character and talks about the job that they want to hire him for. And they begin by saying, we have a diversity problem to which the character responds, maybe you should hire someone diverse. And the guy says, no, we need you. And then of course he goes and he hires this wonderfully inclusive group of firefighters for his team. Why was that the way you wanted to come at this issue? Look, to be honest, that was Ryan's gut instinct when we sat down to talk about you know this particular crew. There was never going to be any question that it was going to be a diverse crew. That's what we have on the other show. We just don't make an issue out of it. Again, the trick for me 
was going in and trying to write a story that tells that story that is not insulting to Texas and that is not insulting to Austin, which is a very progressive, uh, you know, one of the great American cities and one of the great Texas cities. The Justice Department angle of the story and the inclusivity issue in the story, that's all real. Like we base that on the real fire department politics in Austin that had been going on for the last decade. So there was a way for us to tell a story of how it's always a challenge to create a diverse and inclusive work environment, even when the intention is there. It's hard to find the candidates. It's just hard to be proactive in that area. So we'd already decided it was going to be Austin. And then in our research, we discovered that this was a real thing that had happened in Austin, where the Justice Department did have to come in and where they were struggling to try and break this old boys network that was happening in the fire department. And it wasn't because the fire department and the people in Austin didn't want it to happen. It's just hard. So that's why. In a larger sense, you know, you recently renewed your overall deal with 20th Century Fox. And obviously Ryan and uh, Brad Falchuk have both decamped for Netflix. How does that relationship work given the competing studios? I mean, is it still business as usual as if Ryan were still at 20th? Uh, You know, Ryan still has interests at 20th. I would say that of that particular triumvirate, you know, Brad, Ryan, and myself, I'm the guy who stuck around at 20th. Look, I, I, I existed before Ryan, and I existed with 20th. Quite successfully. Yeah, yeah. yeah not, despite you know, your Twitter handle. <laughs> beside, my Twitter, beside my Twitter, yes. Um, but I, So there was a choice made that somebody needed to stick around and protect the assets that we had that were continuing at 20th. That, I mean, that's, that's part of the reasoning. But mostly, you know, I'm interested in continuing my relationship with Dana Walden, and with the people at that studio. Look, I've been there longer than I care to admit. Like, I think now that Howard Gordon has gone to Sony, I have the longest running overall deal at that studio, or even as that studio has now become a different studio in a weird way. Like, I think my my overall started in 2000. Like, when I was on Angel. My second year with Joss Whedon is when that first overall was initiated. So, um... And I figured, look, if they're going to go to Netflix, I'm going to get the parking spaces. I'm going to get the <laughs> building. And in fact, I have a new, I have the new building there. We have that weird Swiss chalet fairy tale building. Uh, like Howard Gordon left. I think I got David E. Kelly's old office. Everyone's telling me that <laughs> F. Scott Fitzgerald was was in that building. So I figure, you know, I mean, if one unsuccessful drunk screenwriter could be in that building, why can't I? <laughs> <laughs> well, talking a bit about the the Twitter handle. When I go back and look at some of those shows that you worked on two decades ago, yeah. Wonderfalls, Firefly, Drive, Dollhouse, Terriers, Chicago Code, those are some great shows that didn't last very long. How do you look back at that period of your career from a position of, you know, fair comfort at this moment? Um, with great uh, gratitude and affection. I mean, the, there was. I, I would always joke that I was in the limited series business <laughs> long before it, we'd made it a thing with American Horror Story. Because I mean, the truth is, American Horror Story is the thing that changed everything. Right? Absolutely. Like we came in and we did this first season, and I remember meeting with Ryan Murphy because I'm on an overall at 20th, and they're like, "Now you got to go meet with this guy." I'm like, "Fine." I, I just, I think, come off of Terra Nova or something. Um, <sighs> and I, w- I was sort of secretly there. I'm like, please don't put my name on this. Um, <laughs> for uh, obvious reasons. Yes, for obvious reasons. 
Um, in fact, I remember when they showed me that I probably shouldn't crap on another show, but I mean, I worked on it, so I get to, right? Do I? Yeah. Uh, so at any rate, I remember when they when they showed me the pilot. Which pilot? There uh, were at least Ter- three. For, Ter- for Terra Nova. There well, were at least no, three that I the, saw. Whatever, whatever the last one was. <laughs> I mean, I let's be clear. Terra Nova is probably one of the biggest, like, financial disasters of the last Yes, decade, it was sort of the heaven's gate of dinosaur <laughs> hour TV shows. And yet we're all here. You know. Well, my first question was like, they're driving, they seem to be driving around in gas-powered Jeeps. Um, do, you do understand that those dinosaurs are not fossil fuel yet? Like, where are they getting the gas? That was my first question. Um, but I, I remember they showed me that they showed me that pilot. This will tell you how long ago it was. And Jen Salky, you know, she called me down. She's like, we just need you to come in and write a couple episodes of this thing. I'm like, okay. And so they showed me the pilot. She's like, do you love it? I'm like, mm, let's put it this way. Osama bin Laden is lucky that they shot him in the eyes. Because he doesn't have to sit through Terra Nova. Um, and, then, and then she was like, so you'll just write two or three. And then she walked away. And indeed I did. So um, what was the question? What was the question? Oh, uh, oh so I, I would always joke that I was in the limited series business. Like when we were doing Wonderfalls, I could see the writing on the wall. that This show will not get picked up. So we gave it kind of a little ending. But like, let's be clear. Wonderfalls was a great show. Was while Terra Nova was, well, Terra Nova. Yeah, no, I'm not re- actually, I'm really talking about the shows that I did, which was sort of like Angel and Firefly and Wonderfalls and The Inside, which is a show I did with Howard um, and Drive and, and um, Dollhouse. These, these shows, a lot of them only lasted 13 episodes, right? Terriers lasted 13 episodes. And Ted and I knew, and Sean Ryan, we kind of knew that it probably wasn't going to come back. So we wanted to make sure that the first, I wanted to make sure that the first 13 always ended in a way that felt somewhat complete because this was back when they're going to be releasing these on DVD. You know, now it's like, what? What's a DVD? Uh, But back then it was like, that was the new, that was the way of the future. I would say that I'm in a weird way lucky that those things failed because it allowed them to succeed. Firefly succeeded because it failed. Wonderfalls, you know, was a very successful 13 episodes, but it allowed me selfishly, to sort of create this unique charm bracelet of quirky shows that I got to do. Like, I got to do, like, the dark serial killer profile show with the inside, but then I got to do the quirky thing where the Gen Y girl has tchotchkes talking to her at a, at a, at a, at a gift shop in, in, in um, you know, I got to do Cows in Space. Um, I got to do all that stuff. Um, so I, while I love and miss all those things, in a way, it's like I got to do a lot of different things. Now, are, my, fa- my failure was my greatest success. Now, in your mind, as you look back, are, were any of them ahead of their time in a way where if they premiered today in the right streaming or cable home, they might have gotten five or six seasons? Or were they all really limited series regardless? Yeah, I mean, I'm, I don't think at the time no one really understood how people were, were viewing television. Right. And DVRs, I think, were just, I mean... It was just a new yeah, thing. I remember thing. when we were on strike that, oh, God said the word um but when we were during that writer's strike it was sort of af- it was when firefly was start it was ten- maybe 10 years after firefly or something it was a certain amount of time and um the show was just starting to become popular because of like itunes and and the dvds this is even before something as easy as streaming in the way that we think of it now so i mean i wonder how many shows that lasted 10 episodes would have picked up some kind of cult following if there had been some place for them to live in an afterlife. The way Firefly was, I feel like, really happening, canceled just at the time when that was a thing that was starting. Were they ahead of their time? I mean, I still say Dollhouse was well ahead of its time, just premise alone. 
Um, I don't think Dollhouse would survive now. I think it's actually, it was almost not ahead of its time. <laughs> I mean, if, if you're thinking that maybe that it, it bears a relationship to, say, Westworld or something, um, what I would say is that, it, that the Me Too movement would have made sure that we didn't make that show in the way that we did. Like, it, if, you look, if you look back at that show, it's a little cringy to some of the ways that we just assumed we would tell these stories. I don't think, and so in a way, I think it was ahead of its time in the sense that, thank God we did it then and not now, because we'd be killed. But maybe, and I don't know about Firefly, if it was ahead of its time, Cows in Space, is there ever a time for that? So it's, you know, talking uh, uh, smooshed-faced lions at a souvenir shop. Really, if that had premiered five years later, America would have gone, oh, yeah, I want to watch that. I I'm not sure. I can't really answer that question. If you could bring any of those one and dones back for another season for, or for a revival or a reboot or a continuation or whatever the kids are calling it these days, which one would you like to see have a second life? Well, it, it would be a very tough competition for me between Terriers and Firefly. Uh, but I would probably say Firefly. I mean, even though there was a, Joss made a movie after the show. I mean, Serenity was actually made. So, yeah, it's, uh, I don't know. Did you ever get down during that period? Like, were there moments where you were thinking, okay, I keep making these great shows. Why are they not succeeding? What do I need to do? Um, did I ever get down? Well, I mean, I wanted to kill myself, if that's what you mean. I mean, but I think that was because I was on Shantex during um, Terriers, and literally I wanted to kill myself. Um, I don't usually get down because something is not hitting or it's going to, maybe that's the, uh, the wonders of being on an overall deal. It's like, all right, well, I'll just go do something else. So I, I never felt despair because things weren't hitting. I'd get sad or I'd, you know, wish that there was, you know, we could tell more stories with that particular format. So, no, uh, I've never felt angry or depressed because a thing, you know, only had a certain. I'm, I was just glad that it existed and that it shone as brightly as it could in the time that it existed. <laughs> Not unlike a firefly. Um, you know, looking to what else you're doing now, obviously you're, you're running two procedurals for Fox uh -huh. and then you've also got American Horror Story. Indeed. Ryan Murphy has said season 10 may very well be the last season oh, for he that. Sa he says that. And then he's going to see something he wants to bid on online and be like, I'm going to need another season. <laughs> <laughs> um, but have, have there been talks? I mean, how are you approaching it? Do you have a theme? Is there anything you can say? Uh, no, we've, we, he only said that he wanted to start meeting on it next week. So we haven't actually officially met on season 10 yet. And how about the long-discussed and shelved and reshelved second hypothetical season of Feud? Is that a thing that you think of, he thinks of, anyone thinks of? You know, we we kicked around some stuff that I thought would have been great, uh, and it just it just never happened. And I just I feel like maybe the momentum for that, I mean, may, maybe that that time has passed. I don't know. Look, they're all Ryan's franchises. He can do with them what he will do. Like if he if he decides that he has a story that he wants to tell that fits into that particular format, then he'll tell it. When you look at these kind of franchise-type shows and you see your sort of capacity within them, what do you sort of see your personal investment in being in them? Like, you know, when you look at something like Feud, do you go, that feels more like a me show, you yes, know? Yes, yes. How do you define that? Well, look, I, I Feud is a very special circumstance in that I have been obsessed with doing a show about old Hollywood. Really, I wanted to do older Hollywood, but th that was fine. Um, I want I wanted to do something about old Hollywood forever, 
And so, you know, when you're with Ryan and Ryan is like, we should do a show about the making of whatever happened to baby Jane. I'm like, really? Okay. Like, it's pretty exciting. And he's like, and we'll get Jessica Lange and I'm, I think we'll get Susan Sarandon to be Betty Davis. And I'm just like, you know, oh, okay. So, I mean, I got to go in there and I got to, you know, recreate old Hollywood. And I got to tell stories that, I mean, it didn't, yeah, that that was almost like, thank you for l- making this show for me, Ryan, and letting me make this show. Because, you know, it's not, it, who's going to watch this thing, right? Like, obviously, somebody watched it. It's the kind of curio that only somebody like Ryan can could get made and put on the screen. And so uh, my gratitude to him and, you know, making me the guy that came in to do that with him cannot be, you know, overexpressed. But, yeah, I would feel like that shows a lot more me, but weirdly... I mean, there's a few shows I can point to and say that show's not me, but I feel like Terriers is, you know, that was Ted's show, but I feel like that was just as much me in a lot of ways. So they're all me. They're just different. I mean, they're just different aspects of me. You know, some, some are gayer than others. <laughs> <laughs> in your career, you've had these long-term writing and, and producing relationships with some incredible showrunners, and you've listed many of them, obviously starting with, you know, yes. now with Ryan and Joss Whedon For and John Ryan. When you look back, what's the biggest takeaways from, from each of them? You know, like, what did you learn from working with Joss, for example? I mean, it is different. It's it's like each of those each of those people that you mention have one thing in common. I was the power behind the throne. No, um, <laughs> uh, it was me. It was me. Uh, now, uh, from Joss, I learned how to put into words how I break a story because we came at it in a very similar way. We looked at it in a very similar way. And he just kind of helped me develop a language for how to talk about the scene needs to be lived in. And, you know, it's the phlebotanum. Like, we, it, it's a bunch of moves, and it needs, you know, what's the Buffy of it? Like, it's, it was always, like, helping me get to the heart of how to break a story and just how to kind of go with my instinct. And our instincts were very similar. So I learned that from Joss. From Ryan, I learned about the importance of producing and making a, th- you know, how a thing looks and what's the aesthetic that you're bringing to it. You know, is it pushed enough? And but does it feel like it's flying off to Mars in a bad way? Like there's he Ryan approaches it in a very different way than Joss does, for instance. So you know, you learn something from each of them. Now I feel like I'm Dorothy at the end of The Wizard of Oz, and I'm like, and from you, I've learned I, you were the most important of all, Scarecrow. Um, but you know, you learn something from each of them. But more importantly, at the end of the day, when you sit down to write your memoir. You're going to sell a lot more copies because you're going to tell stories about all those people. <laughs> would buy, would read. Um, good, because uh, that, that will happen at some point. <laughs> I, I am here for that. <laughs> well, now I want to continue with the with the Wizard of Oz, you know, analogy. What is home for you? What is the what is the dream project that you would like to find yourself landing on? It's so interesting. I don't I don't know if I think in terms of that anymore because I've had so many dream projects, and you just never know what is in store like it never would have occurred to me it's so funny because the whole time i've been on this overall deal i've wanted to go pitch like the weird little silent movie show or i want to do like the, i want to do these cable things that are like you know they're period no one's doing period pieces what my agent would always tell me well you're fired matt but i didn't mean to they made me um but um it never would have occurred to me that i'd be doing a show about firefighters like it's that just seemed Two shows about fire. Two shows, actually. But I have no less love, and I don't think that there is anything you can't do on that canvas that you couldn't do on those other shows. I mean, a lot of times I feel like I'm just writing Firefly in a firehouse with fewer spaceships. Do you know what I mean? It's like it's a found family. It's 
it's a diverse group of people who go out and have adventures together and put their lives in jeopardy sometimes. And every once in a while, they're dragged into a bank heist. Like, it's, it's, it's a lot of the same elements. And I think what we've discovered with this little procedural show is that it has all the kind of right moving parts to hit on a network level. And that's all they ever wanted from me in the last 20 years. Like, fine, you can go pitch your precious little cable show, but really what we need is for you to pitch the big network hit because that's what we're all looking for. And I just kind of backed into it, fell into it, actually. But I love both shows. <laughs> we like to wrap things up uh, by asking everyone the kind of the same question here. What are you watching and enjoying? Oh, my goodness. Well, I just watched Unbelievable. And uh, those two women, are. Just, I could just watch many hours of that. And I probably, you know, I watch The Crown. I mean, I watch the stuff that everybody, you know, Fleabag. I mean, I, I watch the stuff that everybody watches. I'm trying to think of... I mean, you're sort of asking me in the um, in the season post, you get all those screeners of all those movies. So, mm -hmm. I mean, I watch a lot of those, you know, a lot of the screeners that they send. That's always exciting. But in terms of television, the only thing that's really on my DVR right now is Judge Judy. She changed her hairstyle. I don't know if you're aware of this, but it's a bit of a scandal. <laughs> so uh, not for the better. I don't know. I, I never question the judge. <laughs> because, you know, she's the most successful person on television. So true. Yeah. Well, um, thank you so much. Our guest has been Tim Minear. Thank you so much for joining us. Tim. Thank you. Thanks. 911 Lone Star premieres January 19th on Fox, and season three of the flagship series returns in March. Number five. As usual, we wrap things up with the Critics' Corner. Dan, the holiday doldrums are officially over. As much as we've gotten a bunch of news, we've also gotten a bunch of new TV programming, much to your dismay. Um, and we've got several new shows making their debuts this week. AJ and the Queen, Medical Police, and Healing Powers of the of Dude all on Netflix. NBC's Bone Collector show, which I'll let you make fun of that title next. HBO's The Outsider and The New Pope. Freeform's Good Trouble and Everything's Going to Be Okay. Paramount Network 68 Whiskey and, and the return of Sci-Fi's The Magician. Dan, it's a full week. What you got? It really is. And I believe I need to correct you. That would be Lincoln Rhyme colon Hunt for the Bone Collector. It rolls right off the tongue. It really does. It is about as horrible a name for a broadcast show as we have seen in years. And the show itself is actually better just than call its it title. Cougar, just call it Cougar Town. <laughs> it's a worse title than Cougar Town. <laughs> it is a horrible title. The show itself is is average. It really, I mean, it's, it's better than the title and therefore, huzzah. You referred to the holiday doldrums. I would like to quickly single out a couple really good shows that actually premiered during those doldrums uh and no i'm not talking about the witcher but if you were a big fan of the witcher good for you uh people <laughs> should totally check out usa's cheerleader thriller dare me which is better than you think it is and really a lot of fun i think a lot of people will be discovering that show eventually but maybe not watching it now and if you enjoy dare me and want to see real college cheerleaders netflix's cheer from the producers of last chance you is really great so yeah there are a lot of things this week and some of them are some of them are okay, like The Outsider on HBO. It's based on, I would say, a mid-tier Stephen King novel. Definitely not a top-tier Stephen King novel. On the other hand, it has some astoundingly good auspices behind it. Richard Price, novelist, but also writer on many great TV shows and movies, uh, is the showrunner. Jason Bateman, who won an Emmy for failing to turn on the lights on episodes of Ozark, <laughs> uh, directed the first two episodes and pretty much sat in the dark with a wonderful cast that includes Ben Mendelsohn, Cynthia Erivo. 
it is I'm describing it as if you were one of those people who watched the first season of True Detective and got to the penultimate episode and said, yes, this is becoming some Lovecraft stuff and Cthulhu is coming out in the next episode and it's going to be interdimensional supernatural craziness. And then it turned out just to be a mystery. Maybe you want to check out The Outsider because it actually is a murder mystery procedural that then becomes supernatural. I'm not sure it's really all that great, but it's it's not bad, and the cast is terrific. The The best show premiering in the next week is Everything's Gonna Be Okay on Freeform. It's from Josh Thomas, and it's a kind of bittersweet comedy about a, a young man who finds himself raising his two half-siblings, and Josh Thomas is funny, and the uh, two young actresses who I've never seen before who play his sisters, uh, Kayla Cromer and Maeve Press, are really, really good, and they're really unforced, and they're very funny, and they're emotional, and and it's a show that will make you a little bit sniffly in certain scenes and that will make you laugh out loud in others. It's not going to be everybody's cup of tea. I think Josh Thomas is at times a lot as an actor, and I think he's aware of it because he's playing kind of a version, not of himself exactly, but he's playing a character who constantly acknowledges that he makes everything about himself. So you know that he knows that he's sometimes a big screen presence. But the two actresses who play his siblings, as I mentioned, they're really unforced and natural, and they're just a great contrast to him. And it works very well. I, I watched three episodes of that show. Uh, our new colleague, Ingu Kang, uh, will review it. And I look forward to seeing what she says. I hope that she likes it because it's a really, really good show. And that premieres next week. <laughs> kind of sounds like Freeform's on a roll with that and Party of Five. They, Freeform has done a lot of interesting programming in recent years. I don't know that there's any consistency to it, and I don't know that this necessarily feels consistent either. It's a, it's a half-hour comedy, but the first episode is 44 minutes because it has a lot of exposition to run through, and it's not really for young audiences exactly, even though some of the characters are teens. So Freeform is sort of in this mode where they're figuring out what they are. And this has been, you know, five or six or 10 year process of figuring out what they are. Yeah, but they're shifting away from the likes of Pretty Little Liars, which was their cornerstone for so long. Obviously, they just canceled the, you know, the, the sequel or spinoff, whatever the hell it was after one season. So this is a network that's finding its identity and seems to be leaning into the blackish spinoff, Grownish. Not to be confused with mixed dish, mixed dish, mixed dish, mixed dish, mixed dish. Yeah, I can't do it. Anyway. Well, Dan, this feels like a good place to wrap things up. I think we're both uh, a little delirious from TCA. Thank you, as always, for listening to TV's Top 5, the Hollywood Reporter's TV podcast. We'll be back next week when we will be joined by the good fight and evil showrunners Robert and Michelle King for a showrunner spotlight interview. Until then, be sure to subscribe to us on all of your various podcast platforms. If you like us, rate us. If you really like us, write a little review. It's part of how word of mouth spreads. Come say hi to us. We're on Twitter. We're always happy to get your questions, comments, and concerns. But if you have questions that you want us to answer on future podcasts, probably not for the next couple of weeks because we got a lot of press tour stuff, so we're pretty busy. But we definitely will get to it in the future. You can email us at TV's top five, the number five, at THR.com. Until next week, Leslie. Until next week, Dan. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. 
That's right. ChumbaCasino.com has over 100 casino style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchases, only prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.